You're listening to episode 392 of the GNU World Order. My name is Klaatu. First things first, listener feedback. I've been ignoring listener feedback for weeks now, and I have one that, that really, really wants to be responded to. This is from Deep Geek, who wrote me, well, like I said, weeks ago. This is ages old now. But he, he wrote me and said that he wanted to um, mention the Gemini Protocol. The Gemini Protocol is a new networked, uh, a new network protocol intended for for uh, file sharing, as it were, and um, and for browsing. I guess would be a, a, a good way to describe it. So if if this sounds familiar to you, then you might be thinking of things like FTP or Gopher or HTTP. Turns out that that's kind of what we're talking about. So it's funny that in in this day and age, when we when we talk about a network protocol, we say, oh, it's for file sharing and for um, I don't know browsing information or something like that. We we don't think of that description as being the internet. But if you really think about what the internet does, that's exa- that is what it does, right? It it shares files and people, I think, normal regular folk don't think of the internet as being a file sharing platform when they when they hear that term file sharing they think oh downloading illegal files we're file sharing it's a bad thing people get arrested for that and deported and all kinds of things but really i mean that's all it does is it's it's the internet you you log on to other people's computers with read-only access often and you browse their files except you don't see the files as icons on your desktop there are files in a browser and you're just you you open them in a browser people just don't don't realize that's what's going on on the internet so anyway the gemini protocol is sort of a um i i'm really trying to choose my words carefully here um it is a new protocol to enable the the browsing of files on people's computers running a gemini server so that's what it does it is intended to be a a a sociable network not a social network but a sociable network one where you can discover other users in the gemini space and browse through whatever files they have on offer and that's essentially like the internet or or gopher or gnu net or whatever that was called or is called so it's just another way of of transmitting information over the cluster of wires and things that that we all have coming into our houses and apartments and and such and and, and beaming over to our mobile devices it's a it's a different way it's an alternate way of of accessing information now, for, I, I took interest in Gemini really probably about a month ago was when I first, I think, heard of it. And I took a liking to it pretty quickly because years ago, you you may recall if you've been a longtime listener, you may know about this. But years ago, I had a presence on on in Gopher space, in, in, on, on a Gopher server. And I quite, I, I, I wanted, I should say, I wanted to like that protocol because it was theoretically exactly what I wanted. It was information from real people in my terminal. Simple. That's that's what I needed in my life. That's all I wanted was was that. And Gopher made that possible. So I had found, and it, I mean, I just encountered this yesterday. I had found years ago, and it's only sort of, it's only more true now, that when I went onto the internet, I was finding fewer and fewer portals of information that sort of, that were unique 
and that interested me. For instance, just yesterday, I was browsing the internet momentarily for a review of a movie, of a, of a, of a rather recent movie, and I wanted to see reviews of it. And so I typed in the movie title and then the, uh, the word review and into DuckDuckGo, and it came up with... Um, a lot of reviews for this thing, and I scrolled through the first page, and then through the second page of of reviews, and the the third page, and the fourth page. I just kept going and going and going, and by the end of sort of, I don't know, a million possible reviews, I was left completely not compelled to go to any of those reviews, and and I, I was left asking, where are all the people on the internet? Like, where are all the the real individual people on the internet? It feels like now the internet has a lot of places, a lot of businesses and corporations and big franchises, big sites that are collections of lots of people with vested interests and, 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 uh, and some kind of business model behind them. And there are a lot of things online. You can purchase a lot of things online, but there just aren't any people online. Like, I don't know where all the people have gone in the HTTPS space. And that is discouraging, because the internet originally was supposed to be... Well, maybe not originally. The internet that I grew up with was supposed to be a bunch of people connecting over great distances. And that was supposed to be uh, potentially a powerful thing. And I guess it has turned out to be a powerful thing, because you have dumpster fires, as they're called, I think, uh, like Facebook and Twitter and all of these sites that do allow people to congregate, not always with great results. And I don't know, I I guess looking back at that, you just kind of think, okay, well, that was a great experiment. It did not work. And that's not to say that the internet is not a useful thing. It's a very, very useful thing. It's a very powerful technology, and it needs to continue to be an open technology, and it needs to continue to thrive. The internet is, is important. Actually, let me roll that back a little. I don't know that it needs to continue to thrive, but the, the, Network of networks concept is important. HTTPS, I have sort of given up on in a lot of ways. Now, that's not entirely accurate either. I mean, they're, they're honestly, HTTPS has stuff that I need and that I want. It's got, it, it has uh, the local sort of trading post here in New Zealand, the sort of the eBay of New Zealand uh, called Trade Me. It has that, so I can buy used goods from local people really quite easily, uh, which is important, especially now that I'm not in a big city. I don't live in a big city now, so that that's a great service, for instance. And there are more, but I'll just leave it with that, just as a demonstration of why HTTPS is kind of important to me. So, so I do need that, but in terms of getting, getting sort of that, that people connection, and it's difficult, I think, for an introvert and a technologist to admit that people are the key, because you know your 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 impulse, at least if you're at all like me, um, your impulse might be something like, "Well, I don't even like people, so why why would I claim that technology is first and foremost about people? People are problematic. They're they're really quite troublesome." Um, but at the end of the day, I think we all know deep down that it is all about the people. You don't need to necessarily hang out with the people. You don't need to to fill your life with them, but you want that connection. And when that connection goes away in your technology, you kind of start to realize that that's, that's a missing component, that it, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't quite feel the same. So people are important, as it turns out, in our technology, 
And HTTPS kind of seems to be devoid of that tribal mentality in a good way, in a positive way, that, that sort of tribalism that made, I don't know, I guess the early internet, or at least what I consider the early internet, so appealing. Like that, that sort of GeoCities experience of where you can get onto a, onto this sort of phlogiston flow through this weird world of, of, of opinions and ideas and you can just kind of click around and you know the web ring and all that other stuff so i was looking for some alternative to that and gopher was for a long time a, a potential answer to that because it was it was a simple protocol it, it, it you could browse it just from a terminal which was kind of nice uh, because i mean honestly web browsers are for for as often as i think people complain too much about web browsers um i I do acknowledge that web browsers are bloated. They're they're big and and heavy and hefty applications that that maybe you don't really need to run all the time. And in fact, I I don't run all the time. And so it was liberating to be able to get information and ideas and to to browse interesting tidbits of of random random ideas uh, from 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 the terminal. And so I I contributed a little bit to to Gopher. Uh, I mean, not not Gopher code. But I, I had a, a Gopher site, and I had files there that people could browse, and it was fun for a while. But the Gopher server, I think that that I was running, or that I was that I was using, uh, I I didn't install it. DeepGeek actually is the guy who installed it, and he maintained it, and through no fault of his own, like the Gopher server itself, the implementation, the code, I believe I, either it was the Gopher server or it was it's the gopher protocol and and it might actually be the protocol it just the the parsing of the the text the the text uh, format that you need to write in order for gopher to serve everything it just didn't didn't quite work for me uh it would do weird things it would it would um oh yeah you know what and actually i was using i was on two gopher sites one maintained by deepgeek and one maintained by sdf so yeah, and I had the same experience on both, which was that I would do something that I thought should work a certain way, and Gopher just wouldn't. It wouldn't recognize the hyperlink, or it wouldn't recognize the correct format. It would. It would accidentally take like I don't know a directory as a text file or a text file as a directory, something like that. So it was. It was. It was problematic for me, and it was just problematic enough for me to wonder what value it added to my life. And ultimately, I decided it. It was more trouble than it was worth, and so I kind of just gradually lost interest in Gopher. It wasn't that I woke up one morning and said, I'm, I am I need to stop Gopher now. It's just I lost interest and wandered away from it and stopped partaking. And so when I heard about Gemini, I thought to myself, well, this sounds like a great replacement for Gopher in my life. Now, I should say, immediately after having said that phrase, that Gemini itself does not consider itself a replacement for Gopher or for HTTPS. It, it does not consider itself as something that is going to displace or replace the internet or, or you know, the www or, um, or, or Gopher space for that matter. And, and I, I want to say that very clearly because the default setting, I think, for most people looking at Gemini is either why would you want to replace www or why would you want to replace Gopher? So those are the two, I think, questions that they get the most often. That's kind of the, the sense that I'm getting from reading their documents. And that's not what they're trying to do. They are they are specifically not interested in replacing these two. And I think, frankly, it's very important that it doesn't. Because if you try to reinvent the internet, then I 
I believe what will happen is that you will reinvent the internet. And why would you want to reinvent something that you are trying to invent an alternative to, if that makes any sense. So in other words, we're we're at a certain place in the internet's life. We, we've had the web. We've had the web 2.0, which was, I think, the, the idea was that user-generated content. So all the people browsing the web were going to be able to comment and post microblogs and do all these things online to generate content from the users themselves. And this was a bold idea back then. And now I think, I don't know, a lot of people probably think it's probably kind of a mistake. So anyway, we're at this point of the internet where we've got what we've got, and if we're looking for an alternative to that mess, then let's not reinvent the internet, because presumably the same arc would happen, right? We would we would start out with a simple protocol, and we would start adding to it, and then we'd invent JavaScript, and then we would start realizing that what we really need is a comment section, and then we would, you know, and, and so on, and then we would look back, and here we would be exactly in the same spot, except with a different prefix in front of our slash slash colon. So Gemini isn't reinventing that, and Gemini doesn't seek to reinvent proto- uh, Gopher because Gopher is very, very backwards compatible. It's an, it's an ancient, it's not backwards compatible, it's just, it's ancient. And so lots of old retro computing fans can, can continue to use Gopher space and sort of l- l- make it thrive. But the, the, the Gemini protocol can coexist with both of these things. Obviously, it is technically on the internet because it is a, a network-based protocol, so it, it needs a network, and uh, the, the biggest network around is is the internet. So it, it exists on the the internet with a capital I, the the internet of you know the internetworked system of networks. It is it it talks over that and it delivers content to a client. Now you need a client, a gopher, uh, not a gopher, a Gemini client to sort of connect to that Gemini protocol. And you could do that in a couple of different ways. You can read the specification at gemini.circumlunar.space. That is gemini.circumlunar.space. And write your own client, because the spec is pretty simple, actually. Uh, Or, if you aren't in the mood to do that, and... I can understand that. Uh, I certainly wasn't. You can use an existing Gemini client, of of which there are, I don't know, 8 or 12 or or 15 or more. The one that I kind of settled on in the end was AV-98, which is by Solderpunk, who, from what I understand, is also the person who created the Gemini protocol. So, and I think Solderpunk, I think I vaguely sense that I kind of might be following him on Mastodon. Could be wrong about that. But anyway, I've, I've definitely heard the term or seen the name, uh, but it could be people just talking about Solderpunk. But anyway, Solderpunk um, is created Gemini protocol and has created this uh, this very sort of basic terminal-based client for, for Gemini called AV-98. It is apparently based on his own Gopher client, the name of which I forget and I've never used. So download AV98 from gemini.circumlunar.space slash, I think, clients.html. Run that in Python. You type the word go, G-O, once you're at the AV-98 prompt, go, and then some Gemini address. Gemini addresses start with G-E-M-I-N-I colon slash slash Gemini, or well, and then and then the, the the name of the place that you want to go. So here's one. 
um, raw text, raw text dot club. Give that a moment to load, and it loads, and there we are. We, 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 we I see the, um, I see the front page of raw text dot club in the, the, the Gemini f- form of, of this. Uh, there is also a, they, they do happen to have a mirror at HTTP, but, uh, this one is the Gopher, ver- the Gemini version. Did I say Gopher? Yes, I did. Uh, this is the Gemini version, and there are links here. So it says current Gemini users on rawtext.club, and there's a, a big, there's a, there's a list of them here. So I could, for instance, choose one at random. Let me do that here with this, this die two. Okay, so I'm going to just type in the number two and then hit return. So that's going to follow what is designated as the second link, which is not there. Each link is numbered. And so I can choose from the numbers and I have done that. And then it's uh, got a little poem here for me, which I won't read out loud because it's neither here nor there, but it's got some ASCII art. It's got a poem and it's got some Unicode characters, I guess, probably to demonstrate that yes, Gemini understands what Unicode is. So very fun stuff, very cool. And I think what's more is that, I mean, this is exactly, exactly what I, what I've been looking for for years. This is exactly it. This is this is the internet experience that I have been searching for ever since I kind of wandered away from Gopher. So I'm quite quite excited about this. I think it's very uh, very exciting protocol. It's a very exciting nascent community, and it's something to check out if you are getting tired of kind of the onslaught of corporate websites and angry people micro blogging about how they're angry and other angry people sharing and liking reasons, uh, complete misinformation. If, if that sort of thing is completely over for you, check out Gemini. I'm not saying there aren't crazy people on Gemini. I'm just saying as a protocol, it is refreshing. It is a refreshing experience to browse uh, the Gemini space. It's, it's easy to get started um, me and Deep Geek are probably going to start up a little Gemini server shortly um, together, and and I will definitely have a site on on that server. So check that out. It, it is something that's really a lot of fun. It uses um, to to make a Gemini site. It uses the Gemini text format, which um, is I guess somewhat similar to Markdown in a way. It, it is very it's it's low markup. There's not a whole lot that you need to learn. There are some conventions that you need to follow, and there are some weird restrictions that might throw you off at first. So, for instance, inline hyperlinks don't really exist. You have to kind of list your hyperlinks one one link per line, and there's no real way around that. But Honestly, as long as it works reliably, that'll be an upgrade from Gopher for me. So I don't have any problem with those kinds of weird restrictions. And frankly, I think, I mean, their, their FAQ or their, um, is it their FAQ? Yeah, their FAQ, the Gemini FAQ is definitely worth browsing through because they've got a lot of sort of justification for some of the seemingly arbitrary decisions that they've made. And when you read it, you kind of realize that they 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 make a lot of really great points. Like even just the hyperlinking thing has kind of some side benefits, meaning that well, if you're if you're limited to only including hyperlinks one per line, then you're more or less motivated to to be selective in what hyperlinks 
you include in your document because it costs, as it were, a line for you to include a hyperlink, which is kind of nice because if you think about modern websites, a lot of times they'll just link randomly all over the net simply because, well, probably because of some kind of Google algorithm and they know that they need to to link to some other site or, or, or maybe it's because they, they have an affiliate link that they want you to follow or whatever. Uh, and it gets to be a little bit silly because now it's just everything's blue text and you have no idea what actually matters. Whereas when when it costs a little bit more for you to, to link to something, then maybe there's a good reason for it. So yeah, it's an interesting little protocol and I encourage you to look into it. I really do. It's 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 really, really great. It is a lot of fun to browse. It's 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 a refreshing, refreshing thing. So check it out. Check out the servers check out the clients and maybe um, maybe contribute. And interestingly, in the FAQ, the, the primary contribution request right now is content. It says, um, the real shortage right now is not of software, but of content. The more interesting and exciting stuff people find in Gemini space, the more likely they are to want to add content of their own. So the greatest contribution you can make to the project is to be a part of the process. So sign me up, sign yourself up, and I'll see you in Gemini space. Let's go get a cup of coffee and then talk about Scython. drinking red honey Honduras that's the coffee that I'm drinking um I have had to really experiment around with this one on what the best way to extract the flavor has been it's been a little bit difficult and I go through this with new coffee uh, blends or or types it's something that I I kind of expect sometimes you know I'll just I'll grind up some coffee throw it in a, the percolator or the plunger and it just kind of it's just kind of magic instantly other times I just feel like there's there's some under underappreciated aspect of it something that's not quite getting the attention that it deserves and for this red honey Honduras coffee I I kind of felt like that I felt like this is not it's not unique enough to from just any other coffee that I feel like I'm getting the actual flavor that it's it's hiding inside of it. So I most recently I, I broke out the espresso machine and and made a a pretty good uh, americano out of it. And I think that's where that's where the flavor really is. It has to be I think the sort of that mild that mild brew that you get from a, a plunger or from even from per- percolator that's not doing it for this 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 wants to be uh something a little bit more bold and 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 flavorful and is quite good that way so red honey honduras through through an espresso machine definitely working for me i haven't tried it on my stovetop espresso maker yet which uh which i should do and which actually would have been an obvious choice because it was from my stovetop espresso machine or uh, maker pot that this coffee came. It came. It, they came together, bundled together. So I should have obviously tried that. But anyway, I haven't. I will soon. But I think. I think the point being is that sometimes coffee just takes a little bit more. Um, well, it needs a little bit more pressure. It needs a little bit more. Uh, you have to kind of draw that flavor out more rigorously 
than other times. Okay, let's talk about Cython. So this is the first time that we've done this, but this is the Slackware D for development or developer uh, software set. And the first package in that is Cython. And Cython is essentially Python with C data types. And continuing off of that, we can say that Cython is Python. Any Python code that you write, basically, is also Cython code. Also, I don't know if I'm saying Cython correct. Could be Kython for all I know, but I think because it's C Python, so Cython. So Cython aims essentially to be a superset of Python. Now, from what I understand, there are some exceptions. Technically, technically, you, you might encounter some Python code that doesn't work, but generally their their aim is to to be compatible with Python, to, to, to re-implement Python as Cython. Why does all of this matter? Well, the cool thing is that the, uh, the idea here would be that you could write Python code that then gets compiled and should run, run better. Uh, so you can Cythonize your Python code and it becomes compiled code. Now, this is an important concept and it's something that I feel doesn't get talked about probably as much as it ought to be talked about. And this is kind of, I mean, it's all, it's so important to me. I think that it's, it's almost, it's almost, um, a problem. Like this is, I, I feel like this is a, this is something that, that people are ignoring to the detriment of users. So here's what I'm talking about. A lot of people talk about how great Python. I share that view. I think Python is great. It was basically the first language that I really messed around with. I mean, Bash as well, but but really Python was the one that, that sort of taught me a lot about how libraries work and how, how GUI frameworks work and how you kind of tie into those things and how you make calls to functions and all these other concepts that because I've not really haven't gone to school for this sort of thing uh, I mean I've I've since taken a a class here and there but but at the time I hadn't gone to to any kind of class for computing for computer science for programming anything like that and so it was a big deal to me that 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 had been kind of peeled back you know and, and exposed and, and explained um by Python, but but there's this there's there's this kind of very excited crowd within ar around Python that says, well, Python is so great that it can do anything. You can make anything out of Python, and and they'll they have applications they can point to to prove that assertion. At least that's what they say. They they they'll point to things and say, well, look, that is in Python. Like that was written in Python. So obviously the the truth of the matter is you can do anything in Python. And it's difficult to argue with that because, I mean, you see something and, and you look at the source code and you see a bunch of .py files and you think, well, I guess they're right. Anything can be done in Python. But, you know, if you really stop to think about it, well, first of all, if you if you follow that train of thought, as, as you do, uh, I think, very frequently when you're just learning this stuff by doing. You, you'll think, well, okay, I'm, I'm just going to keep writing Python, and it is cross-platform and amazing, and it's fast, and it's just, it's a perfect language. There's nothing ever wrong with Python. There's no reason to ever not use Python. And so you go down that path, and then you kind of start to see the, you, you do start to see some of the threadbare little bits here and there, the, the, the things that are kind of maybe not quite as advertised. You know, you start to, to notice the times when the cross-platformedness is not exactly 100%, where you do have to make a lot of exceptions in your code to catch what kind of platform you're actually on. 
well, that's not that big of a deal. And you look into packaging and you think, wow, this is really complex. This is a lot more complex than I had anticipated. I thought this was supposed to be really easy. And how how to how how is a user supposed to install this? If if I'm I'm building this Python package, but what am I what am I giving to my to my users? And how are they going to know how to install it? And and so on. You know, they, you get I don't know. You start to see some of the areas that aren't quite quite polished for the end user. They might be fine for the developer, they might not be fine for the developer, but you do start to see things that, that just aren't exactly refined the way that maybe they could be for the end user. And there are there are things around those that then help get you th the rest of the way. But you just start to realize that Python isn't necessarily the whole package. And 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 then if you look deeper into a lot of the big applications, you know, because you're thinking, now you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I'm having trouble with this concept. But I mean, way back when I was looking into Python, someone pointed to this thing, to, to application foo, and, and, and told me that it was in Python. And, and I've downloaded foo and, and it, it acts like a normal application. I just wonder how, what am I missing? So you go look at that source code finally, and you realize that a lot of that Python that people were telling you about is not actually Python, it's actually Cython. So it's .pyx is the typical extension for a Cythonized Python file. It's a compiled bit of code that isn't running in, it's not running as an interpreted language, it is a compiled entity. And that, I think, is one of the, the serious, serious omissions that a lot of Python enthusiasts are guilty of because, and, and technically it's not an omission because Cython is after all a superset of Python. And so by saying, oh, you can do anything in Python, I mean, yeah, you, you can. It's just not exactly, you know, Python, Python. It's like maybe Cython, but that's, that's just a little bit, wee bit misleading, I think. Just like when you go to a random, this is, you know, the other the other pet peeve, I guess, that I have, where, where you go to a random open source project and it says, this open source project works on anything. And you think, well, cool, I will recommend it to all of my friends. And then you recommend it to, to people not using Linux and you realize after further investigation that when they meant it would work on anything, they were simply sort of investing in the fact that it's open source. And so it will work on anything as long as you can rewrite it for your platform. That's not exactly working on anything. That's that's being open source and being open to being functional on anything. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the work's been done. And that's an extreme example and a fake example. But I mean, it, it does happen. We've probably all sort of been there. Uh, so I don't know. I feel like Cython is an oft ignored component of the Python toolkit that that probably should be talked about a lot more than it is because I have seen hundreds and hundreds of lines of code written in C and then integrated into Python and then pointed to as a Python application. When you think, well, I know that that's not a Python application because I know the person who wrote the C code that's driving all of that stuff. So yes, it uses PySide and it uses a bunch of Python front-end code, but there's a bunch of C libraries back there that they're calling in order to make that all come together. So I don't want to cast aspersions on Python. I just want to bring to light that sometimes when you're looking at Python code, you're you're you could also be looking at Cython code. You could be um you could you might be looking at a project that isn't 100% interpreted Python script files and are instead compiled files. So just be wary of that. And again, I'm not this is not some kind of advertisement against Python by any means. I think that um 
Python's great. I really do. It's a good, good project. Um, but but it, it's just something that we should be aware of, I think. Okay, so I'm going to go into my demo folder here, and I'll call, I'll make a new one called Scythunder, and then I guess I'll make sure that I have Scython, yes, I do, okay, cool. So Scython is installed uh, on my system, and there's a Scythonize and a Scythonize 3, and so if we do an uh, emacs, I guess, hello.py, and we'll just make a simple statement here, such as print, parentheses, quote, hello world, close quote, close parentheses, and we'll save that. That's a simple little um, file that I'm going to call hello.pyx. Now we're going to create a setup.py. And in setup.py, we're going to do from setup tools, import setup. And from scython.build, import scythonize3. And then we're going to create a setup statement, setup parentheses, ext underscore modules equals scythonize, scythonize3, and then we're going to point it to our hello.pyx file that we just created, and then we're going to close that statement, and then we'll just, uh, in on our terminal, we'll just do python3 setup.py build underscore ext dash dash in place. That's i-n-p-l-a-c-e. Oh. And apparently I'm incorrect about that. It's not Scythonize 3, it is just Scythonize. My bad. Python 3 setup.py build x in place. Okay, there we go. Uh, and there it compiles the file and results in a in a um, a new directory called build. And in there there's a hello.cpython-37m- x86-64 Linux GNU.so. So I have a .so file now of my very own, and I can now use that library in Python. So if I do Python 3, I'll get my Python 3 prompt, and I can now, um, I can import hello, what is it, hello. And it, all it does, of course, all my library does is print hello world, and that is exactly what it d d does. After I do import hello, it, it, it prints hello world to my, to my Python um, prompt. So there you go. That's building a, a very simple library with Scython. Now if we do a file on hello.cpython, where am I? Yeah, so if I do a file on hello.cpython, there we go, uh, blah blah.so, then it tells me that it is an ELF 64-bit LSB shared object, dynamically linked, and so on. If I do a less on that file, should be pretty ugly. It's a binary file, it warns me, and it is. It's very ugly. But there you go, that's that's compiled code that you wrote basically from Python, ran through Scython, or Scythonize specifically, and uh, were able to use it in your own Python, Python applications. So that's pretty cool, and pretty powerful, and really, really important, I think, kind of arguably to know about. So in the couple of episodes back, I made a prime number application. So I'm going to do a, uh, I guess I'll do an emacs of prime num.pyx. And I'm going to create some some code, and this, I'm, I'm not actually creating this, I shouldn't say I'm going to create. I'm going to copy and paste some code from the docs.io into this file. I have a library now that will calculate 
prime numbers form. Same thing goes for the setup. Well, I don't have a library yet. I have a, a bunch of text that will create a library. Okay. Uh, and then I'll just reuse the old setup setup file, except instead of uh, the hello.pyx file, I'll point it to primenum.pyx. And then, of course, I can run the code to compile, to Scythonize this, which is python3 setup.py build underscore ext dash dash in place. That compiles it for me again. Now I have a prime numcpython 37m x86 linux.gnu.so. I'll launch a quick idle session here, python3 import prime num. Now that's imported, so I should be able to issue, for instance, prime num dot primes because that's the name of the function the, the method that I have in the or the function I guess in the, in the code so prime num is the name of the of the module and then dot primes that's the the function that we're that I'm calling and then in parentheses I'll put uh, I don't know 12 and that gives me the first 12 prime numbers that it finds 2 3 5 7 11 13 17 19 23 29 31 and 37 all in a nice little python List. Exit, parentheses, parentheses, and I'm out. So it's really, really powerful. This is a Cython. Like, it's a big deal. It's a, a really, really nice little application. And in a way, I'm not entirely sure why this wouldn't be the default. I guess, I guess maybe, maybe it's not the default because because there's a certain simplicity to just a scripted language and python has that going for it is it is a scripted language it's just something that happens it's not that big of a deal pretty easy maybe that's why i don't know so here's here's a here's a cool exercise too i think this kind of demonstrates just how i i guess how how much of a no-brainer it kind of is to do this. So you can even do this with with more than just sort of text-based things. So you know the turtle library possibly in Python. It is a it's a little drawing application sort of for Python. You can program sort of etch a sketch m mode in in Python. So I'm going to open up um, I'll do turtle demo. Can't call it turtle because Python would get confused. Um, so turtle demo .pyx, and I'll just do an import turtle as t, so I don't have to type as much, import time, and then I'll do t.color, quote, red, close quote, t.begin underscore fill, parentheses, parentheses, counter equals zero, and then we'll do a while counter is less than four, colon, indent, t.forward, um, 150 t.left 90, so the little turtle's going forward 150, and then he's turning left, and then it's counter equals counter plus 1. And I mean, I could do more than that, but I'll just, that's enough for me right now. Unindent t.end underscore fill parentheses parentheses, time.sleep parentheses 2 parentheses, and that is good. The sleep really is just gratuitous, it's because it otherwise it happens so fast that you kind of can't even see it. Now I'll go back into my setup file and change that to turtle demo.pyx, and then I'll build it with python3 setup.py build underscore ext dash dash in place, and then launch python3. Now I'm at a python prompt, so I should be able to just import turtle demo, and immediately a screen a GUI screen opens up. This is the front end to the turtle graphic application, and it it draws a rectangle for me. And hey, I can almost see it happening because I did put that, those sleep statements in there. But, but, so you can Scythonize like all kinds of Python code. And, and in a way, I, I almost think that it would, 
possibly arguably be worth doing more often than we do. I don't believe that it's always worth it by any means because that is that that well that it's it's sort of making your python code almost more platform dependent because now you're you're you you require cython on that pi- platform and then you're going to compile it and so on so i don't know that it's always worth doing and i don't know that all python code would benefit from it anyway but it is definitely something that one ought to keep in mind if one is embarking on some serious python work because like i say i th- i think it it is very, very much ignored or or just kind of somehow omitted from conversations when people are talking about what you can or can't do with Python. They just, for some reason, don't ever mention for, for large projects that, hey, you know, some of your components that you're thinking of doing would probably be better written in C and maybe loaded in in Python that way, or maybe maybe some of the stuff that you could be you're doing could be compiled down so that it would perform a little bit better and so on. It's just never mentioned. It's just as if though everyone really does believe that Python can just magically run as quickly as compiled code, no matter what, no matter what the task. It just somehow still can can work that way. It's just it it seems. It's it's really odd to me that that Cython is not more uh, a, a more a topic that doesn't come up more often. I, I don't understand why it's not something that that people don't talk about more often in re- regard to Python. I don't know if there's some kind of block where it's like, well, I can't talk about Cython because that might make it seem like Python itself is inadequate, or whether it's just something that people forget to mention, or what's going on. But Cython, I think, is more common than you would think based on conversations around Python, and it's it's a great tool. It's something that's really important. It's a, a very important part of the Python toolkit. You should and you should use it. You you can and should use it in 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 certain cases. I'm not again not saying that you need it all the time, but it is something that you should be aware of. And if you're doing Python work, you should look into. Uh, possibly sort of how it could maybe work for you. I guess I should probably address the exact things that come in the package. So there there are three binaries included in the package. Cython, Cythonize, well we've already covered Cythonize. I think we can agree that that's been covered. So Cythonize is the thing that turns Python code into a, a binary. There's Cython and then SciDBG. So Cython itself is the conversion, it, that's the converter for some Python code. So if I do cython hello.pyx, then in my directory, I, I now find that there is a file called hello.c. Yes, so cython converts the, py, the, the Python code that you write into C code. So if I open this up, I see um, 1,700 lines. It's 1,700 and actually six lines if we're including some comments here of C code. So if you want to actually see the thing that's that's being generated, Cython is probably the thing that you'd want to look at. Now you can also do Cython dash dash, uh, what is it? C, C plus, C P L U S, hello dot P Y X. And now in my directory, as you might imagine, is a C plus plus file called hello dot C P P. That is 1,715 lines of C plus plus code. Is this the most efficient way to write, for instance, a hello world in C or C plus plus? Probably not. Is it an easy way to convert your Python to C or C plus plus? Well, yes, it it, it definitely does that. SciGDB 
inside GDB3 are Python scripts that load or, or that start up uh, GDB, the GNU debugger, with uh, the uh, with a with the uh, the appropriate entry point. And we're going to talk about GDB in a future episode here, in, because we're in the D package set of Slackware, so. GCC and certainly GDB are included and will be talked about in great detail in the future. So I, I don't want to sort of skim over GDB right now by sort of demonstrating really silly, simple Cython examples when something much more complete with a lot more context about wh what we're debugging and how that happens and how to make it work, that'll be covered in the GDB episode. So I'm going to just kind of say SciGDB for further information, see episode in the future on GDB. That's good enough, I think. Okay, that, that was Cython, and in the next episode we'll, we'll, we'll move on, because that's the, uh, that's the first package in the D package set. Next up is AutoConf and AutoMake and maybe BinUtils. We'll see how far we get. Either way, it's exciting stuff. This is a lot of uh, code and programming-specific tools, and they're a lot of fun. Stay tuned for more next week. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.